Killjoy's PhD, an hour of feminism, pop culture, and politics, as discussed by two professional Killjoys. I'm Rachel. And I'm Melody. And today we'll be discussing prison reform, transformative justice, prison abolition, and a number of other things with a very special guest, Natalie Holbrook, who works for the American Friends Service Committee, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. I got to sit down with Natalie and then Melody got a chance to listen to the interview. So Melody and I will talk about that. First, Melody, where can our listeners find us on the internet? In select places. We have a Facebook account, both a page you can like and a community page, Feminist Killjoys-WTF community exclamation. Yeah? Yes. All right. Yes, you got it. And a Twitter account and a Gmail account, fkj.phd at gmail.com. We have a Spotify mixtape. If you would like to support feminist media makers, you can donate to our Patreon account with a micro donation every month, which we mucho appreciate. And we also very much appreciate uh, one-time donations that you can leave on our website, which is feministkilljoyspodcast.com. Just click on the birdie and leave us some cash. And Rachel probably sounds better than I do this week because I have my travel mic and Rachel has her NPR mic. So, ta-da! And I'm also sitting much closer to it, which I didn't do the last episode, so I think it's going to sound even sexier. You look really profesh. Thanks. I just want to echo that we're really grateful for our listeners who donate, and we're grateful for our listeners who don't donate, and we're totally grateful for all of the iTunes reviews that we uh, got in. We definitely got an influx of iTunes reviews around our birthdays, so thank you for responding to that. Uh, We'll definitely read some on air soon, but we're going to leave a little more time for the interview today. So thank you all. We really, really appreciate that you're out there. How are you doing, Melody? I'm fine. I'm just, there's a lot of running around of today, and... One positive thing that I will share is at my workplace, there was some subtle resistance for when Donald Trump, you know, took away the transgender bathroom policy that Obama put forth. Mm-hmm. I might not be using the legislative language correctly, but anyways, in one section of our campus, students removed the women and men from the bathrooms and put up like no hate posters and it just made me feel so happy yesterday so I love those subtle moments of resistance they keep me going but besides that I'm just you know getting by one day at a time how about you what's up with you uh it was another really hard week like mental health wise just depression and anxiety that I struggle with, but usually keep at bay really pretty well. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, it was just not being kept at bay. Uh, and the state of the world was a reason for it. And just a lot of things that I won't get into, but it was kind of a tough week. Uh, yesterday felt a little better, partly because we went to uh, sort of an you know immediate urgent response rally in relationship to the transgender bathroom stuff and uh, got to be in community with activist people who were fired up. So it's always good to be in community uh, when shitty stuff is 
was happening. So that was good. Um, also, my mom is in town this weekend. I'm super excited about that. It is our annual tradition of watching the Oscars together. And uh, I'll look forward to unpacking that more in probably next week's episode. But I'm excited to see her. And Logan's mom is in town too. So it should be should be good. Oh, wow. It's going to yeah. be like family fest. Well, I hope you have a lot of fun with the family fest this weekend. You're going to make something from Issa's cookbook, I assume, from the Oscar section. Indeed. She has like uh, pigs in the blanket, except they're carrots, little baby, little baby carrots. Did you make those? No, but I saw them. I was like, that is Rachel. Because yeah. I was like, oh, hot dogs. No, of course yeah. not. Now, can't even make <laughs> no. fake hot dogs. We got to use the carrots. So. Thank you, Isa. <laughs> That's great. Anyways. All right. So yeah. uh, enough about us. Please tell me more about your amazing interview with Natalie, who she is, all that good stuff. So Natalie Holbrook is somebody I had the pleasure of meeting uh, in Michigan. We have a couple mutual friends, including my partner, including my friend Jay, who I went to school with, who's a former, former prisoner and PhD who studies prison stuff. And so Natalie was uh, is an amazing queer prison person who works uh, with prisons. So she's the director of the American Friends Service Committee's Michigan Criminal Justice Program. And I was just so honored to get an hour of her time. She's very busy and is a parent. And um, I was just really grateful. So it was it was a really lovely hour. Um, I do want to give a little more of an intro because there were some technical difficulties and about uh, five to 10 minutes of our interview was cut off in the beginning. So all that you're missing, listeners, is Natalie and I introducing sort of each other and uh, Natalie explaining what she does at AFSC, as well as her background as a working class person growing up in a white community where she saw people go to jail, but never rarely prison. And sort of noticing that the ways that whiteness and poverty sort of work differently than blackness and poverty and other uh, people of color who are targeted disproportionately by the prison system. So that was sort of one of the roots that she shared that I was uh, really struck by as somebody who also grew up with poor white people who went to jail, but not as not prison, not as much. Mm-hmm. And um, so we, we talked about that. And then right away, I just asked her if she could explain the difference between restorative justice and transformative justice. And so right. that is where you'll all be jumping in and, and hearing our conversation is when she's explaining the, the nuances between those things. All right, here we go. It's not a model of the the circle necessarily. And um, I'm not saying that that can't work for adults who've done violent harm in community, but it's not that I like to talk about transformative justice, but I came into this work looking at that, those models, like the restorative justice circles, mediation circles, the harmed party being able to be involved in what the accountability measures were for the person that did the harming or the people that did the harming. Mm -hmm. And that's like that very traditional restorative model, which I think is great. Mm -hmm. Um, I think transformative justice is us really exploring how that kind of accountability can happen in community, but also really addressing structural poverty, structural racism, Mm -hmm. and creating new ways of existing in community, Mm -hmm. which restorative justice isn't going to get at. Like, right, it's going to get at that harm that was done, but it's not necessarily talking about how do we stop the harm from ever happening? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For me, transformative justice is like we would be getting at all the root stuff and then dealing with bad things that have happened in communities. Right. Um, Thank you for the first time I was sort of introduced to transformative justice work was through 
like activist sexual assault, addressing sexual assault in activist communities and other forms of sexual violence and interpersonal violence in activist communities and sort of the difference between like isolating and condemning a person in a community who perpetrated harm rather than seeing if there can be transformation and accountability. And that was like really fucking difficult as like a young feminist who wanted to say like, fuck anybody who harmed women in my, in my circle and et cetera. So it's really fucking powerful when you can get over that, that sort of initial hurdle of understanding that to use a cliche, like hurt people, hurt people. And so related, but bridging. Um, So assuming that, harms can be healed and root causes can be identified. Given that those models are things that we know that can work and are and we can put in place, is the end goal for you and or the work you're doing at AFSC, maybe those are these are going to be different answers, is the ultimate goal a world without prisons? Do you identify as a prison abolitionist? So I would love to have a world without prisons. And I would say, yes, I'm an abolitionist in my heart of hearts, but I do incremental change work. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see prisons going away in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. So even I can dream it, but it's not going to happen. So it's because I'm in the thick of it. And I experience like policymakers and decision makers and people who have power every day, very wedded to prisons. Mm-hmm. And I can bump up against it with incremental change work. Mm-hmm. So it means that we address conditions of confinement in individual cases all day long, every day. Like that's, we're in it with people and we have to be, because if we weren't, then some folks wouldn't get out and be free and be able to die at home. I also think that in order to do transformative justice, we have so much other work to do before people ever end up in prison. Mm -hmm. And have to like really confront misogyny and we have to confront the patriarchy and all like all the things that feed into it. And so I, I don't, I'm not an idealist pragmatist. And I think that, you know, I work with people who have raped people and who are going to get out of prison and rape again. Mm-hmm. So, and they, unless they're invested also in transformation, like as an individual, mm-hmm. I structures all day long but I also there is this piece of personal accountability that has to be we have to be raising it up in the activist community because we can have the best analysis on the planet but I like I work with these men and I experience I I mean this is just me getting into the sort of nitty-gritty of the work that we do I've read like thousands of pre-sentence investigations Mm -hmm. because we help people prepare for parole that's part of the work we do in our daily work and people have done some really, like, just awful, awful things. Yeah. Um, I mean, it is, I have, like, secondary trauma from reading all yeah. that. And working with them and sometimes experiencing their, like, all the hurt in them again and again and again because they're angry or whatever. And so I, I know that the system we have right now is failing them, like failing people who aren't ready to be held accountable for what they did on the individual level and have no analysis about how the systems might have led them to where they are. Mm-hmm. So being in prison doesn't help that, right? right? There's nothing there that's helping that person. Right. But bringing them back into the community without infrastructure to really hold them accountable And I'm not saying surveillance. I'm saying like to hold them accountable if it's not there and they don't have jobs Mm -hmm. and don't have education and they don't have housing 
then we're setting folks up to like do the exact same thing again. Right. Um, or something similar. Right. Um, and so I, yeah, I'm an abolitionist in my heart of hearts, but yeah. I also am such a pragmatist because I've done all of this individual casework right. for so many years. I mean, I've been doing this since 2003. And yeah. so like there are thousands of cases right. um, and they've left an imprint on me. Right. So. Yeah. Understandably. I think that's, I think it's really easy, especially for activists who come from really privileged backgrounds who haven't experienced like the complexity of poor people or any other like marginalized community to basically like exotify the other as like an entity that can't also can't also be the victim of a super fucked up system, but also a potentially fucked up person who isn't capable, isn't currently capable of undergoing that accountability or transformation. So yeah, I totally hear what you're saying. I mean, part of the work that you do, do you get to intervene and try to yes, we create do. that kind of accountability? So I mean, part of what I mean, this work was always feeling so incredibly hopeless to me in a lot of ways, because we are up against this like enormous beast. I mean, mm-hmm the militarized prison system and the amount of money we spend on it. And it is like insidious is just like, it's huge. Mm -hmm. And it's run by people who believe in social control. Mm -hmm. And they think that that is creating public safety. Mm -hmm. There's all these other systems that feed that. And so can I can I actually pause you really quick? Is that okay? Do you really think that people who are running that system actually believe it's public safety? Or is it really I mean, there's so much profit in it. I just feel like so much law and order rhetoric is not people who say that stuff don't actually believe it. And but I'm curious, since you work a little more closely, do you think people actually believe that? I think that a lot of the public and people in power do believe it. I think that they I think they use rhetoric. um, But I think that they actually believe that they are snatching up criminals off the street and mm-hmm. keeping people safe. Okay. I think that they also, I think it's more nuanced than that. I yeah. think that they realize that like if people have opportunity for education when they're in prison and have opportunity for vocational and technical training and have opportunities to get connected to jobs, that they are way less likely to ever come back there and mm-hmm. that they are working on creating public safety that way too. I think that prisons have become in places, not everywhere, like my colleague and friend and who's my new staff person here at AFSC did work in Alabama, Mm -hmm. you know, and those prisons are like just even light years behind where Michigan is in terms of programming and access to education and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's still abysmal. I mean, Michigan's abysmal and how much programming might be there or not. I think that those folks also believe that they, they can provide services that they're stuck with folks. They can't control who gets sentenced there. Yeah. And so they, I mean, because they aren't involved with the front end, which is totally messed up. Mm -hmm. And so they're doing what they can to piecemeal together rehabilitative programs for these folks. Mm -hmm. And it's a crapshoot. I mean, for some people, it's really going to work. And for some people, it's not. And so like the numbers of like, you you know, 25% of people in Michigan's prisons suffer from some sort of mental illness, right? Yeah for somebody with severe and persistent mental illness who can barely get through the day in a prison setting, how are they going to participate in like educational programming that will be helpful for when they get out? Right. right? So they know, and I think that the officials, like the people in power are the administrators understand that. And they still 
think, and not everybody, I'm not saying everybody, but a lot of folks think that, you know, if you killed somebody, then you should go to prison for the rest of your life. And right. that that's keeps us safe. Right. So I'm, I don't think everybody thinks that I know wardens. I actually know people who were wardens in the DOC who have gone to bat to get people out. Oh yeah. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. Who want, like who, who understand that lifers, people doing life sentences and have been down a long time are going to be like, they, they're the best people on the compound. Right. Right. <laughs> resources and they know they'd be okay if they had support when they got out of the system right. and they go to bat for them. So I think it's a mix, but I yeah. do think that there are a lot of people in administrative positions in DOC who think that it is about law and order and mm -hmm. it is about public safety. Um, but then also there are people with good hearts who are like, oh, well, we can give some people second chances. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Interesting. I think that's another thing that I'm inclined to do is just paint anybody in a position of power as an unnuanced, you know, monster, evil person, enemy, but they're also like susceptible to all the ideological shit that the mass public is susceptible to in terms of how we construct who the bad, like who the bad guys are in our society, which most people think are the people in jail, not the people running the jails. And I just think the opposite, but I want to go back to the reform versus abolition idealist versus pragmatism question. Um, I was reading a Dean Spade interview recently and he talked about like his line for the kind of incremental change work is like, does that incremental change work bolster and empower the, the system that we're trying to fight against or does it like help alleviate harm within that system without sort of bolstering that system. And I thought that was like a really good sort of bar to set and helped me feel better about because I started like a yoga program at, uh, in Minneapolis in the jail that like the boys detention center. And I felt like really slimy about like participating in making the print, like the jail a nicer place. Um, when I didn't, I don't believe that any sort form of incarceration is can be nice at all. <laughs> but that that Dean Spade sort of like line like helps me like feel better about that kind of reform work. I, mean, I think that's why we're present in prisons and we yeah. are we're accompanying people through their prison journey. Like mm -hmm. that's the work that we do. We hear from thousands of people every year who are in the Department of Corrections on all sorts of conditions of confinement related issues and access to freedom issues. Mm -hmm. And we're there for them. Yeah. And, I, and I'll give you an example. Like if we weren't doing the incremental change work. So I have, he was my good friend when I first started at AFSC. He was like an informant kind of guy who mm -hmm. would call us and worked very closely with my former director who's retired now. They were partners actually. Mm -hmm. But he would call. And so the first time I ever heard him, he was, he was calling from prison behind the prison walls. And he helped us navigate cases. He understood, he was a like legal beagle guy. He understood all the policy directives. He was super discerning and he was serving a parolable life sentence for murder that happened when he was 15. Mm -hmm. So, um, and this, this work in calling us many times through the week and helping us out was super important to him, um, as a person living in prison. And also we were helping with, trying to advocate for him to be released along with a bunch of other parolable lifers, which is the work we still do today. Right. Yeah. 
because our parole board does not let parolable lifers out easily. And so like we worked and worked and worked on his case also. He finally got a public hearing after a new judge, his successor judge kept vetoing his movement towards freedom, which is all the complicated crap that we understand in this work. And he finally had a public hearing and I went and testified on his behalf and and then he got out of prison and this was, it will be three years ago in July. And he died in November and he would have died in prison. Yeah. We hadn't yeah. there with him. Right. And so he got two and a half years of freedom. Right. And then he got really sick and he died. But he had two and a half years of freedom after f- almost 40 years in prison. Wow. Um, yeah. And so to me, like, that is what this work is about is yeah. like the more people we can accompany out the door. Um, and this is people doing time for hard, hard stuff, the better. Yeah. And we need to be present inside and be there with them in their journey. And so it's not doing anything to like reinforce the system. Right. Or like create a tougher system. Right. You know, any for any conditions case where we get like if we all of a sudden had I'm not saying this is happening because it's not, but like if there was a class action, if that could ever happen where we could sue about food quality yeah. and like people got they, they they were forced to pay three dollars a day instead of under two dollars a day for three meals per prisoner, then people would have better food. Yeah. And that matters for mental health and physical health and everything else under the sun. And so even advocating like that people should have better food without having like class action lawsuit, which will never happen. Right. But like that matters. And so I think that's why we're present inside. I mean, we do, we do both advocacy work through the mail yeah, through phone calls, but we also are present inside and we go inside and do parole preparation workshops and all of that, all of the information that we give to people and share with people is directly informed by people who've gone through the parole process or who've been stuck inside. So they've reviewed our documents or they're formerly incarcerated people who wrote it because I hire formerly incarcerated people. Mm-hmm. And and like, it's super important to do so yeah. if anybody's doing this work with, right. in, within a nonprofit context. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like, we go inside and then I go in and work with a group of guys around the accountability work, the responsibility and moving through trauma and shame. And that, so we do offer that sort of an option. It's volunteer run. It's very informal. I went up to Kinross with my partner, um, actually for like a year and a half. Um, and we worked on a curriculum with, um, some national lifer guys up there. Um, so driving to the UP in the winter (laughs) and not being able to communicate with these men because I'm not allowed to, um, because I'm a sanctioned volunteer up there. So, If you're a sanctioned volunteer, you can't then write or be on the phone with people living in the prison that you volunteer in. And so, what, yeah. What is the motive? I don't understand the reasoning behind that. Um, I think they think over-familiarity and that you would huh. like, you don't know. It's a terrible rule, especially oh, when you're doing really good work, trying to develop curriculum. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we worked on this for a year and a half, and then the men are running it on their own right now. Okay. They, um, they did a facilitation training also. Uh-huh. And so they run this class on their own. And um, I think they're starting a new one right now. I have to go up there. I'm trying to get up there in March to check in because I'm only allowed to communicate with the special activities director. Uh-huh. And so they have, it's a like 100 page curriculum. There are all these modules. They go through them. There's empathy, accountability, family dysfunction, networking, communications. Like I just went up as a guide for them. Mm-hmm. Like wasn't I wasn't like 
this is what you should do. I brought resources. Yeah. And then I'd find out later that they were saying, oh, those were all written by women that, you know, we need some articles by men, all women. It's, we can't have that. So then we'd have to do like misogyny 101. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. It's interesting, honestly, that they like even noticed, I think. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking from a very different place as like my college students who like constantly assume that it's a guy and don't even take the time to look at the author's name. They just, they, he, they, they said he about Gail Rubin, Judith Butler. I was like, okay, this, this was not written by a dude, but it, that does like lead me though to another question I had just about inter, engaging interpersonally as a white person in a men's prison. And I, so I actually have a twofold question because when I was doing the yoga program, I got introduced, I started the yoga program because I was doing another volunteer, like a writing workshop sort of thing with a, with an organization in Minneapolis that had access to the boys detention center. So it was a detention center for youth who were being tried as adults, boys. And I asked like, do you have a version of this for women or women and girls? And the guy was just like, it's just a lot harder to get in there. And then I asked the education director when I started the yoga program and he's like, yeah, I don't, I don't know about, I don't know about that. And so my first question is, do you know anything about why I hear so much more about work happening in men's prisons than rather than women's? And then the second question is like, how do you navigate that space that is disproportionately men of color? So the first question, the women's work. So in Michigan, we have 41,000 people in prison, 41,500, and only 2,500 of them are women. Hmm. We only have one women's prison and we okay. have 30 men's prisons. Interesting. Wow. Okay. So, where we focus our energy is where there are the most people, yeah. except where we're located is where the women's prison is. Okay. So I go into the women's prison regular, pretty okay. regular and work a lot with the women there. I mean, not I, I'm not a volunteer there and I can't be because I have to be able to communicate with the women. Right. So we have a, a, a volunteer who's awesome. I mean, she's an amazing woman who's been going in there for over nine years, sometimes four times a month. I mean, mm -hmm. she goes in there a lot yeah. and and helps the women run the national lifers. So um, we're pretty present in the women's facility. Okay. Like I will, and, and I, it's through that volunteer, but the men. So then the other question of going into men's prisons. And so I take up space differently. <laughs> I mean, I'm gender nonconforming and I have never experienced any sort of what I know women who are present as women and cis women and femme or whatever mm -hmm. might experience in prison. So I take up space very differently. And it's been a very interesting um, journey for me. Mm -hmm. And like, I go into these spaces, and I feel very welcome and, and accepted. Mm -hmm. And I have almost like this brotherhood with guys. Mm -hmm. And and this is for men that I know, I know, you know, the work that I've done through the years. So it's very, it's, I don't know. Yeah, it's this sort of like, I haven't, I've been thinking about it a lot. And I haven't, I need to like write about it or something. Because like, I have these, they're my brothers. I mean, when I start to have guys who are, you know, like I hang up the phone from prison and it's like, I love you. Yeah. It's like, I love you because this is like the love of, doing work together right um and like building a relationship in the the movement to get people free yeah so there's that and I also with my whiteness I like wield my privilege in ways that I 
am trying to open doors for folks that might not otherwise get open. And this is an interesting thing because when like we get a meeting with the administration, for instance, I also become invisible in a lot of spaces because of my gender nonconformity. Mm-hmm. So like people are, I, you know, there's this weirdness within these power structures <laughs> where I'm like sort of not there. Yeah. Um, but then if I bring people with me who are formerly incarcerated and black men, they're then the door has been open and they are at the table and like that matters. Yeah. Um, and their voices matter at the table. Mm-hmm. I mean, my voice matters also. I have a ton of experience. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. Right. But I need to wield my privilege and make sure that in those sorts of situations where we're doing policy change work or having meetings where we're learning about how the system's currently functioning, because what part of what we do is having good information. Yeah. There's so many myths inside. Yeah. So we try to always have really solid information and have meetings with people. And then having people who might not otherwise get a seat at the table, a seat at the table is super important to me. Yeah. The in-prison work, you know, like making sure that I am bringing resources about how the root causes cause the system to be there. Because, like, a lot of people inside don't have the analysis. Right. Um, that you are or I might have I mean many do but yeah so many don't the majority do not and so like making sure that I bring that to the table is also important so yeah. that we're working through this mess together yeah uh, if we're doing something like my work at Kinross for our parole workshops I just flat out like get up there and I'm like I'm sorry I'm going to be talking at you for like two hours yeah and I wouldn't I would have it a different way if I could yeah it would we're doing a small class and we're sitting down together, but we don't have the capacity for that. And so I have all this info because we've been collecting it and we work with people individually through the mail, but to get a hundred men in a room and be able to give them the info about how to sit before a parole board member and do an interview, um, the importance of having support in the community and having a parole plan in place and all the logistical stuff necessary. Like I just own it. I'm like, yeah, sorry talking at you. And we also have formerly incarcerated people who've been through the process that are with us right. in that. That's important also. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for yeah, sharing that experience. I think it's to sort of rewind back to your what you were saying earlier about gender stuff. It's I actually wrote something that I'm trying to get published in an academic journal right now about how interest how interesting it's been to be body policed as femme or being read as like a feminine woman and how interesting it is about the thing that is most emphasized and policed when I would go in and to the jail is the dress code and how interesting it was that the idea of like your clothes can't be too tight can't be too baggy and it felt really interesting that it was just interesting to me because not all bodies can have things that are baggy given given like people's like curves or mm-hmm. body types or level of fat etc and just who and who who and who it was not enforced for and I got like slut shamed real hard for like wearing pants that were tight because I was teaching a yoga class and they were like the loosest yoga pants I had. It was so much more about one of the other activist guys who I worked with and then uh, the guards. I did not feel like violated or objectified or any like I was fine once I got like in with the boys. But so it was just interesting to think about. It was really difficult to, to like be in that space in my like femme body. So anyway, that's just a side note. Or I mean, that's what I'm saying is I don't take up space like that in a a 
prison because I don't, I mean, I have been mistaken many times as being a dude. And so, I mean, like where they like are calling an officer, a male officer to come like pat me down. Or I've been, I was even at a public hearing where they only wand you and do a slight pat down. And the guy was like, we don't have a female officer here today. So, you know, women just walk in, don't, we're not doing any pat downs. And he's like, you, you come back over here. So like, you know, it's, blatant so it's just a different experience yeah yeah it's just interesting it's just an interesting thing to think about gender in in the prison spaces as as quote-unquote as like outsiders and then the other thing just about like owning privilege and owning space taking yeah is, is also interesting I think I had a lot more anxiety about the boys thinking that I was you know this college educated white lady who was trying to be like white savory but sort of going back to the fact like that's like the stuff I read about all day is like my white privilege and all of these things, which they obviously experience and understand what white privilege is, but they weren't like, they were just like, oh, cool. I don't have to, like, I can like do this like kind of physical exercise for an hour. Great. Like they, they weren't like ready to attack my, my whiteness and my, and my privilege. They were like, cool. Glad we get to hang out for an hour. Um, so yeah, so I was, it's, it's interesting. Activists are like anxious about, what it means for their body to be in spaces, which is super important to be reflexive about. But it's interesting to have two examples of it, like actually not being a big deal with the actual inmates. No, I think my experience of folks living in prisons is they want people to come in. Yeah. People to be there to witness Mm -hmm. and they want the relationships and the connectivity to the outside. And I will have people who remember like what I wore 10 years ago. Mm prison. Wow. And it's because they don't have that. Like right. we're interrupting the security control and basically controlling their bodies all day long. We yeah. interrupt that when we go in. Yeah. And so I think that's important for people who are like steadfast abolitionists to think about. Like there are folks who won't go inside, right? Right. But to think that we do interrupt those systems of control when we go in. Yeah. And it's important. And it is also about like recognizing the humanity of the people that are there and being able to carry that info and those stories back out absolutely, um, and share it because, you know, I've shared it with people who would have nothing to do with folks inside. Mm -hmm. I mean, but like sharing my life experience with them, they, it starts to humanize the people behind bars and then they like change a little bit. And that's my whole, like we have a whole project called the good neighbor project with lifers inside. And the point is to have people connected in co-mentorship relationships so that outsiders can take the the message that these folks are amazing and like yeah. transformed and should come home and live next door to you. Absolutely. Um, and that we need to change policy. Yeah, it was fascinating. Um, just like the, the rules and the policing and the be careful of these dangerous boys, be careful, you know, you don't wear tight pants because these boys are monsters kind of rhetoric that I got from the jail versus... Mm-hmm. Like when I moved to Boston, I started working with Black and Pink and like literally they have like a section of their training about like, if you decide to be romantically involved with somebody on the inside, like here, you know, like so humanizing and it's like, pick this, you know, can you be available to pick this person up for their court date and like keep, take them in your car and like, they're not completely ignorant to like risk in particular situations, but they're also just like, yeah, it's a person like, yeah, of course you can like take them in your car where I feel like so many people so much of the public who doesn't think, who just hears what they hear on the news, particularly people in communities who are not 
disproportionately policed and targeted would be horrified by the idea of starting a romantic relationship with a prisoner via letter writing or putting a prisoner in your car. So yeah, it's just really interesting how different people talk about it's just discourse about prisoners. It's just interesting. So I'm curious how you talk to your daughter about the work that you do. Do you mind talking about that? I mean, she knows that I work with people who are in prison. She doesn't understand what prison is yet, Mm -hmm. I don't think. Um, I think she's just actually understanding the notion of, like, policing in general. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, I don't think she's gotten it. She's six. Mm -hmm. so, So she knows that, like my colleagues like Peter and Demetrius um, and Ron all did a lot of time in prison. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've talked about like what landed them there. So she gets that and she knows like TJ, my friend that died, like, you know, it was one of my, the highlights of my life when she finally actually met him, Yeah, Um, but she doesn't get it, get it. Mm -hmm. So about it, it's there in her, in her brain. Um, I also help to parent two other children Mm -hmm besides Willa. And so, um, and they are older and get, they get policing in prison more. They're also Mm African-American. I still don't think they get prison totally, but we talk very openly about policing in prison and Kayvon, you know, he's like seven years old. Um, and we talk about the police will potentially target him and how he'll have to be when he gets targeted by the police. Mm -hmm. And so we're very candid with him and we would have those conversations with all three of the children. Yeah. It's just the, a matter of, un- he understands it way more as a seven-year-old, almost eight, he'll be eight in August. Whereas the six-year-old, she's just getting it a little bit. So yeah. candid, yeah. Um, without giving too much information. Like I don't want to, I don't want to talk about the gruesomeness of prison and like Willa will be here. She's been at, in the office actually when we're like talking about a hard, hard case. Yeah. And I'm like, I need to make sure she can't hear this. Right. So she's her headphones on and we need the doors closed. Yeah. 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 So we're, you know, but then she might hear another case that is like about, I don't know, somebody's colostomy or something. It <laughs> doesn't matter as much. Right. <laughs> so, you know, we were just pretty candid, but also not like, I don't want her to learn about rape. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you. Um, I know we have, we have a number of listeners who are, who are parents to small children. So I think, um, I know some people are trying to think through how to, how to talk to kids about this. So thank you. I think humanizing and for some people, they are going to have family and loved ones who already have experienced prison and jail. Um, for those of us who don't have direct, like my, you know, mom isn't in prison, but my friends, I mean, a crap ton of them have been there and like, and they are amazing people. And we just like, you know, we talk about it. Like, yes, it happened. And now they're here among us and you're learning from him every day or whatever. Right. Right. Do you have any other resources or any sort of final words about the work that you do that, um, you would want to share with the listeners, any books or activists or organizations other than AFSC and, other things we've mentioned, black and pink, that people could look to? Well, I mean, I just think prisoner support is super important. I I think being connected to people inside matters. Um, and that's for f- people who are family members of people inside. I think it's important for family members to be connected to other people in other systems mm-hmm. um, if they have the mental and emotional wherewithal to do it. Mm-hmm. So I've seen, like, great things come from that. So mm-hmm. I just want to throw that in there. Yeah. 
But I think being connected is what we have to do and is to as many people as possible. I don't think letter writing is hard. Right. It's pretty easy and there's a lot of prompts out there and different, like Black and Pink's doing it. There's other pen pal organizations. They don't always have the best guidelines. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we have guidelines for writing with folks inside mm-hmm. and also having healthy boundaries if you want to have healthy boundaries. Yeah. Like, so I think that's being, being connected, is, it matters a lot. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's, I'm trying to think of like activisty books right now, but I, um, I'm, I've been reading Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run, so I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to like veg out sometimes. Yeah, that's actually a great transition to the last couple of minutes I would love to steal from you. So we usually end the show um, with our RWL segment, um, what we're reading, watching, listening to. So you just answered what you're reading. So you're reading Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run. What have you been watching and listening to this week? I've been watching Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. <laughs> Excellent. Another good veg out. That's good. Yeah. And uh, I didn't even know that I would laugh at that show, but it's pretty funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have been listening to Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska last night. That's so great. I really am a Springsteen fan. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So Yeah. He's fantastic. Cool. Those are good answers. Yeah. Kimmy Schmidt actually like, it's very funny. It's also, I think, really like a fascinating um portrayal of trauma i think they like do a really good job talking about like ptsd kind i mean it's like obviously it's supposed to be humorous but i think i i was like quite struck by it as somebody with ptsd i thought it was it was pretty good so i've been i was reading i've been reading uh robin dg kelly's freedom dreams which is Mm. really wonderful i was watching horrible clips from the trump press conference which just made me I don't even know what, I don't even have words. It was terrible. And then I'm listening to, um, do you know Cakes Tequila? No. Yeah, Cakes Tequila is like a hip hop, genderqueer person, artist, and it's really good. That's so I should thinking. check it out. You should check it out. Cool. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I really, really do appreciate you giving time. I, it means a lot. And um, I'm excited for the listeners to hear what you have to say. And thanks sure. for the work that you do. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for doing this. And we're back. All right. What an amazing interview, Rachel. That was amazing. I was like... She's pretty great. Oh, my God. I was listening, clapping. I was like, good question, good answer. (laughs) Just so many, so many things. So um, as I was listening to it in my car, I was taking out uh, receipts from my therapist and writing notes on the back of them. (laughs) Listeners can hear that. So that's... Because I was like driving, listening to it. And then I was like, but I have so many thoughts. And so I parked and I just like scribbled them all down. But uh, so I just, you know, I really like that you, you know, towards the end started listing off some resources and and things that people can tune into, watch, get involved in. uh, And I'll sprinkle some more of those in as well. Um, But first, you know, the biggest thing I want to say is like, wow, that the story about the person getting out of jail two and a half years before they passed, I was crying. Like that story is just so compelling. Yeah. And just so powerful. And I, you know, that was just, you know, one of the stories that was swirling around while I was listening. But my initial reaction was really thinking about, you know, this concept of, you know, hurt people, hurt people. I love that idea. But I kept going, you know, I kept thinking about prison reform and and even abolition. You know, I was imagining people with like a rubric. Um, Mm -hmm. And just hear me out here, like rubric about like, 
who should and shouldn't go through reformative justice, right? It's like people like drug crimes, obviously, right? Drug crimes, you know, and, and that seems to be a lot of who's in jail right now. So we, you know, preference. Vast pref- majority. Yeah. So let's be clear that like who we're talking about are, you know, black men who are in jail for trumped up or in prison for trumped up drug charges. And then obviously, you know, weapon charges as well. Um, And so again, on a rubric, that would be like, yes, definitely, right? But where I started to get a little hesitant about this stuff is, and some of the stuff isn't even jailable offenses, but, you know, serial sexual harassers, serial sexual assaulters, um, people who hurt children, people that, yes, I understand that a lot of those people are hurt, and then they then hurt people. But when Natalie started talking about personal accountability, and the fact that we cannot guarantee that these people are going to hold themselves accountable, um, were the people that were cycling through my head. You know, about mm-hmm. how frustrating mm-hmm. it is that even if we choose not to go through the, the criminal justice route and try to do community based restorative justice. And like you mentioned, you know, dealing with that when you were younger with uh, sexual assaulters. And mm-hmm. I've definitely had to deal with that in my own life multiple times. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, not arguing that those sh- people should be in jail, but this lack of accountability that these people seem to have, you know, where yeah. they are, quote unquote, punished for, you know, by getting let go of jobs or being ostracized by communities, but they continue to serially hurt people. And that's mm-hmm. where the argument, that's where I like... I stop. And I and mm-hmm. I say if I had a rubric, I would probably not check them off as somebody that I would trust a reformative justice model could work. Mm-hmm. But I also don't think that prison works, right? So then right. where do you go from there? So th- exactly. th- that was just something. Do you have a response to that? Otherwise, I can keep... I mean, I think that when people come to that place, they're like, so obviously they have to be in prison and you just acknowledge that that's not your sort of go-to response. But I, I, so just to reiterate that it's important to say, maybe that doesn't work perfectly, but neither does prison. It's the same way that people talk about like, well, socialism has never worked in another country. And it's like, well, guess what? Capitalism doesn't work either, but nobody wants to talk about that. So similar sort of metaphor, but in terms of I don't believe that anybody is inherently incapable of transformation and accountability. I don't believe that that's true. So I just have what, maybe this is just a question of sort of the nature of humans, but I just don't believe that there are total lost causes. I think, well, Mm -hmm. and if there are, that's super rare. I think that there's sort of other sociopathic conditions that are happening perhaps, but I have a lot of faith in, I guess, people who that it would be possible under the right conditions. Those conditions are going to be hard to come by in in the current society that we live in. So, you know, I appreciated talking to Natalie who who was more pragmatic because I think she's agree I think she would agree with you on that, which is why she's not calling for abolition tomorrow. Whereas there are some people who are. If we can get hey, Dean Spade, if anybody is besties with him, I know we're like kind of 2 degrees of separation away from him, but I would love to get somebody who's hardcore abolitionist, Jason, who runs Black and Pink here. Maybe I could try to get him on the show because I, you know, that's that's a serious question. But I don't have the perfect answer. I just know that prison is not the answer in my mind. Yeah, and I think um, you know we've talked about this on and off the air as well. But this this idea that we don't even have the community resources set up right now. So if we did want to rehabilitate a serial sexual offender or sex workers or, you know, we don't, I don't even have a number to call to say, hey, we have this serial offender and we do not want to put them through the criminal justice system. Can you help them? You know? Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking about just the people I'm thinking about is like, we don't have any other options besides trying to work it out ourselves. You know, especially, you know, I know in the DIY 
DIY punk communities, they really try to do their own kind of community restoration with with Mm -hmm. serial offenders. Uh, with sexual harassment and assault, but they're making it up as they go. I mean, we don't even have a framework, you know, absolutely. to, yeah, to I know. work I'm... with these people. And, and that's, you know, where even outside of reform, where community organizations need to start creating these kind of things, which I know many are. Absolutely. I mean, I think we've both talked about, I know we've both had neighbors that I've heard what sounds like a, abuse and violence mm-hmm. on, you know, next door to mm-hmm. me. And this one family in particular is a Latino family, and I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have called the cops if it was a white family necessarily. I also didn't see anything. I couldn't necessarily prove anything, but I felt really trapped when it felt like I was hearing harm being done. But I also knew that calling the cops would create likely more harm given given the way that the cops interact with poor people and poor people of color. So it's very difficult there, and there was nobody to call. And I've had a number of people come to me because they know that I'm invested in this framework and Same they said now. who literally who can I call yeah. if if I hear this and it's like I don't have a number for you I don't I don't know so I hear you it's it's not there's not enough stuff intact right now because we're all trying to survive under capitalism when we don't have time to create those things you know without the resources and without the time and all of those th- things so yeah I, I definitely hear you but I think that I talked about this with Dr. Timothy Alexiak, who's been on the show before, I guess, lectured for his class via Skype. And I uh, taught an article that I wrote that does call for prison abolition, um, or what it calls for is unions divesting from police and prison unions is is what it calls for. And we had a really interesting... One of the best things you've ever written. I love that. So good. So good. We'll get a... Thanks, Thanks, Mal. Make sure we got a citation for people to check it out, because seriously, it's like... Anyways, gone. Sorry. Enough. Enough love lettering. Go ahead. (laughs) So we had a good conversation about it. And I think something that the students said that that really struck out to them, stuck out to them the most is that, you know, once once upon a time, masses of people in the U.S. said our world simply could not function if we didn't have slaves. So this is an impossible idea. This is an idea that can never be done. Literally, our entire society is running because of slave labor. So I'm sorry, like, I'm sorry that this is not the best, but we have to have slaves. Like, that was literally the argument. Mm -hmm. So I think that for radicals and leftists and progressives, we have to imagine new worlds. We have to envision things that seem impossible because it's the only way that important change has been made in our world. So I just think that the sort of argument like, well, we don't have the perfect thing in its place. And I can't imagine a world that didn't have this isn't reason enough to not keep fighting for it. I agree. And in terms of that slavery argument, did you all talk about the documentary 13th? I, I taught it in my class. No, did, uh, did you and Natalie did talk, talk about, about Natalie. it? I don't think we mentioned it. Yeah. So that's if people are really interested in this discussion, I would encourage you if you have Netflix or your friend does, or your ex does to mm-hmm. um, log in and watch 13th because they they take you through this narrative of how our country started as a slave-based nation and then how we started to imprison some of the first black men, just, you know, how that's connected to the 13th Amendment. So Mm -hmm. I was thinking about that documentary a lot while we were, while you two were talking. Um, Mm -hmm. And then just another resource, obviously, the new Jim Crow book is uh, just necessary reading and 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 michelle alexandra Mm -hmm. is uh alexander i'm sorry is uh quoted and interviewed in 13th and then also Mm -hmm. rachel are you familiar with we are all criminals 
Mm, I don't think so. So this woman came to speak uh, at my class, and her project is going around and interviewing white people who have been uh, who have done many crimes but have never been put in jail for them, and mm. talking about it. Um, and, and so her kind of her catchphrase is, you know, one in four people have been to jail or prison, but four out of four of us have committed crimes. Yeah, that's that sounds. I mean, that sounds like a book worth assigning to every student who is skeptical because it's just so true. And the best part is We Are All Criminals isn't even a book. It's a interactive website where you get to look at images and and interview clips. That's great. Let's Um, definitely link that or put that in the show notes. Yeah. So she's, she's awesome. Her work is awesome. And it's, you know, it makes you start listing all, you know, when she was talking, I was listing like all the things I did and like thinking about like, if I would have gotten caught for those, like where I would be right now, which is not where I am right now. Exactly. You know, because people who have done less are in jail, you know, right. and that's just fucked up. And I know that it's because of my privilege and, you know, I'm, I'm very well aware of that. And so that's why it's important. You know, another thing that I was thinking about is, you know, I had this image of an octopus and like how, you know, outside of the prison reform system, what we can be doing to make mm-hmm. sure that maybe we could like be lowering the amount of people that are even going into prison and jail in the first place. Right. Which is why mm-hmm. I love organizations like Neighborhoods Organizing for Change. Mm -hmm. I'm sporting their t-shirt right now. You know, for example, when the city council budget went up, they uh, were asking the police budget to, a lot of it to be redirected to community policing. And of course it didn't pass, you know, Mm -hmm. but at least they're trying. Um, And so stuff like that, where they're like, you're messing up our neighborhood. You give us the money, we'll police ourselves. You know, we'll we'll train mental health officers to go intervene in situations. And, you know, so there's those things that are going on outside of the prison system to make sure that we limit the amount of people that are going to prison. And then, you know, even if if you're listening and you're in the educational sector, if you're not if you don't know this, and I actually was just reminded of it last week, if you're a felon, you don't get financial aid to go to school. Right. Yeah. So there you go. That's how and that's how the system already fails you. So you get out of prison and you want to get a better life. Well, you can't even get to go to college for free. And you definitely would qualify for financial aid, income based. Most of these people would. And we don't give them financial aid. Yeah. Yep. We don't. Yeah. Felons have or felt. I mean, I say that in danger quotes. Yeah. Formerly incarcerated people are so deeply fucked after if they get out after they get out working, maybe working outside of the federal financial aid system to make sure that we can get funding to people who want to go to school after they get out of jail and prison. Yeah. Because, you know, it's just so obvious. You know, another thing I was thinking of, another shout out to Knock uh, for what they do. They also hire felons. And so that's also something that you could talk with your workplace about as well is uh, what their policy Mm -hmm. is on on hiring people who've been in prison Mm -hmm. and whether they can be hiring felons. Because people are just like, they're so scared. Mm-hmm, and I, um, I think you were talking about driving uh, people that just got out of prison around or something. And I gave mm-hmm. um, a guy a ride a while ago. Um, he's like, I just got out of prison. Can you give can you get me here? I was like, yeah, totally. No problem. And I dropped him off and it was like totally fine and fun. And we were mm-hmm. talking about the election and, you know, glad to meet him. I didn't even like catch his name. And and then after I was driving away, I was like, oh, my God, like most people would actually never d- they would think that he's like a scary guy. Right. You know, like right. right out of prison. It's like, oh, my God, go. You know, you're going to mug me. Right. And it's like, right that's the environment that these people walk into out of jail. And it just makes me so sad. And so just, you know, think about that as well. Um, Yeah, absolutely. And not to say that, I mean, as a woman, I'm, I'm scared to engage and pick up and be around a lot of people in general and men in general are 
scary and threatening, but what's nice about black and pink in particular when we're doing court support and driving people around is like, they are literally, you know, sort of in touch with a, an organization who it, it, it's, it's a little more, they already know somebody that you know and those kinds of things, which is not to say that people you don't know who just get out of prison are bad or scary people, but that as a woman, I am yes overly scared all the time. <laughs> but so just, just to sort of complexify that. I mean, that's rad of you, Melody. And another thing I love about you that doesn't surprise me is that you were like, yeah, of course. So anyway, yeah, just, and just noting that gendered stuff, you know, and gender nonconforming people and all of, all of that. Yeah. It, and, um, I wasn't trying to like bring that up as like a white savior, like, look at me kind of thing. It was just one of those. Oh, I, know. I didn't even make the assumption. And then afterwards I was like, Oh wow. Like, yeah. was I supposed to be scared during that thing? I, th- right. I think right. I was supposed to be, but I wasn't, you know? Right. Um, but <laughs> that's interesting though, that you bring up your gender presentation because I found <laughs> Natalie's kind of response or to your you know, critique of the, of gender policing in the prison Mm -hmm. system really interesting. I was like, you know, sometimes the way that I look, I often don't worry about myself because I'm not Mm -hmm. presenting in that way, but that doesn't, that's not fair though. It doesn't mean that when you go into these spaces that you should have to be thinking extra hard about how, how you're looking and people's responses. And, you know, this, this idea that like, little boys, I see them as boys in this, in juvie, that they're just like out of control animals, hypersexualizing mm-hmm. women is just ridiculous. And obviously that right. wasn't your experience. It's always the right. adults that are like, oh, you know, these girls get our, you know, they have to dress more conservatively. Otherwise it's like right. as if men have no control. And I mean, right. some don't, some are just dogs, but you right. know, that doesn't mean that you have to change how you look, you know? And so I know that's a struggle yeah, that you have. And, and I, I wish you would have actually talked a little bit more about that, though, about how hyperfemininity does work in, in the prison system. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the short version is just that femme presenting people are assumed to be always already the potential victims of sexual predators and or are also considered to be kind of sexual predatory, like as in sluts. So that was, yeah, just very hard to navigate. And as I mentioned in the interview, like it was, honestly, it's difficult with my body type to find baggy pants. I, I mean, sweat sweatpants, I suppose I, I, I could have found. Um, and I did have a pair of sweatpants that I would wear. But, you know, for some people, even sweatpants don't really fit their body loosely. And it's always just interesting who does and doesn't get targeted because there mm-hmm. were, you know, men and people with different body types that got away with wearing that. And it's, it's almost like if you are curvy in any way or feminine that you're just yeah assumed to be both victim and predator and it's just really fucking difficult but yeah there's that's a we could definitely do like a whole episode on like the manufacturing of women's clothing and how they make it all so small anyways that you can't Mm -hmm. unless you want to go to the men's section and get like extra large sweats which you would feel totally uncomfortable in just like me hanging out in like a tight skirt and high heels that would make me feel very uncomfortable like right we can't expect that of you Why? Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah. Gender is such um, a con- oh, so dumb. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I borrow um, Logan's like sweatpants and t-shirts to go to sleep in sometimes, mm-hmm. and I just feel so weird and not good. And they're mm-hmm. you know, and they're huge. And I you know, yeah, I appreciated Natalie's response, and and um, I'm grateful that that she is able to move through those spaces more easily because as a gender nonconforming person in the world, you know, she obviously experiences many more difficulties in, in, in other ways. 
any other closing thoughts about about it? The only other thing that I had written down is um, just kind of thinking through the privilege of people who choose to go to jail and those who are forced into the system. Mm. That was just another thing, you know, that that doesn't really impact much about reform, but just like, wow, there's like this whole discussion going on. And then we also have people that are like actively choosing to get into the system for often Mm -hmm. activist reasons, you know, and Mm -hmm. like how, how that, how that interacts. So that was the only other like kind of thing that I thought of, but that's just more to just kind of mull over, not really have like develop an opinion on. So that's all. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I think that would be another great topic for an episode, Um, you know, intentional, intentional arrest and civil disobedience where you plan to be arrested and be part of the system that's yeah it's an interesting topic and uh i am you know given people's different identity positions sometimes that feels more accessible than than for others and or not so anyway yeah i'm i'm glad you enjoyed the interview i really enjoyed talking to her and uh we're very grateful also i wanted to mention that i was thankful that she wanted to play rwl but I recorded that interview the same day we talked to Sarah, uh, mm-hmm. a actress. So my RWLs were the exact same. <laughs> so That's I was okay. like, oh, I probably should have said different things. But no, it's okay. Anyway, um, you say yours before. Well, we I mean, I think my I just kind of already like listed in like thirteenth <laughs> yeah. is what I'm watching, reading. Yeah. We are all criminals. Interviews, listening to. I will say, Killer Mike has a song called Reagan that my student. Nice. I we watched Tribe Called Quest uh, Grammy performance in class yesterday, and like two of my students came up with like this laundry list of songs that I need to check out. So yeah, bless cool. their hearts, and not in a southern way. Like seriously, yeah. bless them. So yeah, yeah. All right. Cool. Well, All right. You got your Oscar weekend to go to, so you better yeah. get going. <laughs> All right. With the All rap, right, rap, and hip and hopping, ladies. There's not going to be any of that. At- oh. At this Oscars, there was, I feel like a rap song one year, but not this year. I don't oh, that think. was the, oh, you mean the one time that only black people got nominated was John Legend and Common for oh, their song right. for, yeah, Selma, for Selma, and yet Selma didn't. I know. Anyway. <sighs> yeah, we can talk about how fucking terrible the Oscars are, even though I watch every year. So, I'm going to watch two this uh, year because of yep, you. you. We'll tweet. Follow us on Twitter. We'll be tweeting. Uh, okay. Well, WTF. Power. Bye. Bye. Tangerine
had the great judge's girl away His mama stood up and shouted Judge, don't take my boy this way Well, son, you got any statement you'd like to make Before the bell more